Hi everybody, I'm Dr. Megan Hanlon and welcome to Unraveling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and ask them who they are, what they do and why they are so passionate about doing it. Throughout this series, I hope to welcome you all into the world of research and to really get a glimpse of the people behind the lab coats, from immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering and much more. So, if you're ready, sit back and let's begin Unraveling Science. Okay, so today I'm joined by Dr. Kieran Fairman, who has recently been appointed Assistant Professor of Exercise Science at the University of South Carolina. So Kieran's research focus is based on the power and benefit of exercise in the management of cancer and the treatment side effects. And throughout his impressive career in exercise oncology, he has studied in universities across the US and Australia, but is also a strong advocate of science communication, um, a host of his own podcast, Reach. And so, yeah, I'm delighted to sit down and chat to you today, Kieran. So uh, thanks, Mill, for coming on Unraveling Science. I appreciate it. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and, and chat to you. I'm just going to start right in. Um, so at the start of the podcast, I kind of want to get a sense of who you were in childhood or what you were like in school. And <laughs> were you always interested in this career or was there a different path kind of uh, in mind at that time? I laughed at this question when you sent it over. Um, I was I was a, a huge messer uh, growing up. Um, school didn't appeal to me at all. I was, I, I was a football player. I played Gaelic football and I played soccer. And kind of in my teens, soccer started to take off a little bit. And I was had this, you know, the goal that we all do, try to, try to make it as a professional football player. So to be honest with you, you know, growing up throughout school, it, it wasn't a big focus. You know, I, I was pretty close to failing my leaving cert. Um, so much so that I didn't actually have any, <laughs> I didn't even put universities down on my CAO. I put a lot of kind of, yeah, what do you call them, like prep schools or whatever like PLC yeah exactly exactly so I was told to set my bar (laughs) pretty low so I ended up actually getting to an unbelievable course in Colossi Eden Fingers it's called an association football course where they basically took a load of lads who had no real other options or aspirations other than being footballers and took us through a year-long course where we tried to get our grades up and we studied our SATs to try and get a scholarship to the states and so that that course was the, the course that kind of changed my life, really. It gave me an opportunity to head over to the States and start my journey. But even then, I still thought I was going over to, be, to become a fresh, professional footballer. So I, cu- I couldn't play my first year because my grades coming out of secondary school were so bad. And the curriculum in the States for college is different than it is in Ireland, where it's not necessarily vocational. You can go and study two years of general education where you dip your toes in history or carpentry or engineering or something like that where after those two years you commit to a major so for the first two years I was studying French American history and failing all these classes and at the risk of getting kicked out and eventually I got really lucky in finding exercise science and that it's literally the only thing I could imagine doing because I tried everything and it was useless at all of it until I found exercise science and were you playing how I started were you playing soccer over there as well yeah yeah so I was really really lucky and I got a scholarship to go over and play and so it, it's really interesting the dynamic between uh, academics in America if you're an athlete versus in Ireland because in Ireland those of us who were kind of in secondary school who didn't really have aspirations to go on academically we just mm-hmm. forgot about school and so by the time you come out of high or secondary school a lot of us had 
close to fail and leaving search, we didn't have any other options. In America, you have to maintain a certain grade point average throughout school to be eligible to play. So that same premise exists throughout college as well, which means that even if you didn't make it as a, a coming out of secondary school or coming out of college, you at minimum maintained a degree. You know, a lot of lads I grew up with dropped out of uh, school after their junior year to try and play mm-hmm. football. And a lot of lads have played football in college would have been on the line, but only for the fact that we had to maintain a certain grade to play football. A lot of us stayed in and that, that was the same grade for a lot of people. So it was like that for me until I found exercise science. And so when you moved over to America, like what was that like? What age were you? You must have been 18, 19. 18. And it was, it was the most, it was a life changer. I remember flying over when I, I did it a horrible way. So uh, I had a huge gone away party the day before my flight. And so I'm already have the fear on the flight over and the flight's six hours. And I remember halfway over there going, I don't know anyone in this yeah. country. Like I just left my ma, you know, my ma broke down crying at the airport, left my family and friends. And at the time I had a decision to make between signing a contract with um, Sport and Fingal, which were a team in the, the Aircom League at the time or take this scholarship and I was I was kind of going I had everything at the time for an 18 year old I was kind of in and around the Aircom League you know I was doing my thing and now I was moving to rural Kentucky so uh, I was moving from Dublin mm. to essentially the equivalent of Cavan <laughs> in, yeah, in that America is, you know so funny even to think that because I think <laughs> You know, when you think of someone going to America, you think of like New York or LA or mm. something. But actually, you were moving from a city to a very rural like oh, background. It was a huge culture shock because, you know, Dublin is, in, in terms of America, it's tiny. But in terms of Ireland, it's massive, you know, a few, mm. few million people. The town I rocked up to in, in Kentucky only had about 50,000 people in the town. And they are all from Kentucky. Very few people had been out of the state of Kentucky. Very few people have seen it anyone from a different country and you know think of kind of the deep south bible belt of america that's what it was like so around right. a bunch of people who come from farms and stuff and i rock up in my 2008 dublin city clothing with like tight vests and v-necks and chain looking like a lunatic and the you know again universities in dublin are pretty big at trinity and dcu and stuff this college had two buildings it was it oh, right and so you know, not only that, but the football team was useless. <laughs> so <laughs> I moved over with all this aspirations to turn a professional. I was in the middle of Kentucky. I couldn't play football for a year because I was ineligible. And, um, you know, I was taking American history and stuff like that. And then because I was so abrasive, I had a really hard time settling in initially. So I was in this place, no friends, no nothing, you know, doing party in school. It was a very, very big culture shock and definitely a hard time for sure and so then at what point did you kind of uh find exercise science or kind of find your feet i suppose um because the first year you're saying you were not eligible to play sport mm-hmm. and you were kind of doing all these different subjects that maybe you didn't see yourself really studying yeah i went back and forth on a few different subjects like i was i was business for a while and i was sports management then i was biology for a day until i looked at what was required and i <laughs> quickly went to something else and then i was in psychology for a bit and it, it was kind of like this perfect storm of things that happened in towards the end of my second year of, of college. So 
I went over at Division 2, which was the level I was playing at. There's no strength and conditioning coach. There's no dietitians. I put on a boatload of weight, and I was too heavy to play football. And I had no guidance to lose it. So eventually, essentially, I trained myself into an injury. So the season in America is so short. It's only three months. So I, I essentially got to this point where I was so depleted. I broke my foot, and I was out for the season. That turned into me developing an eating disorder and I became bulimic for the goods of about a year and a half. And at the same time, my mom got breast cancer and she started to deal with all the things with chemo and radiation and surgery and stuff like this. And a lot of the side effects of those things are mirrored by the positive effects of exercise. Mm. And so the two together, coupled with this guy, Jason Crandall, who um, was a PhD in exercise science who arrived at the school halfway through my second year and basically started this new program of exercise science at the school. He was one of the first people to actually get to know me on a on an individual level. So I got to know my story with my own things going on and then everything with my ma. And I remember taking exercise physiology with him and he would come out and watch me play football and ask me questions like, you know, why do you think you're warming up? Like what's happening? your body you know it's like oh just getting warm and yeah. he's like well no there's actually things happen you know your ph levels raise your your enzymes operate in a certain temperature then we need to get them up to and i was like this is unbelievable and it was a combination of my interest in, in my own body my interest in my ma and then him taking a personal interest in me and kind of investing time in me and getting me passionate about this stuff was kind of like this perfect storm to to kind of get me interested and i say this a lot like i'm it's, it's an insult to call me intelligent because I'm, not, I'm just an idiot who likes, likes to exercise. It's the only thing I could imagine myself doing. And when all that stuff happened, Jason, you know, he flew me out to conferences, helped me out with his own money. He got me a job at his brother's restaurant working, um, you know, cash in hand basically to keep me going. And he put so much time into making sure that I could grasp this stuff that it, it was life changing for me, you know, and, even towards the end of my college career where I wasn't really at the level that I could get into a master's program. My grades weren't good enough. He put his neck out there and he, he, you know, he personally recommended me the programs and reached out to his personal connections. So it, it was a huge, you know, that second year for me was, was a massive throwing point. God. And like, you know, one of the kind of questions I, I do ask people on this podcast is, is there kind of a moment or defining person or moment in your life where you were like, this is what I want to do. And I, that story about, you know, your, your supervisor, did he end up being your supervisor? Or was that more of a mentorship? Yeah, he ended up, I mean, I call him a mentor because we didn't have any um, kind of st- structural advisory roles. You mm. know what I mean? He was the undergrad advisor for the major, but he didn't necessarily have me in charge of certain projects, but he did so much for me. But you know what? At the same time, I could pick out a person at every stage of yeah. my life. So, um, I, I, I say this only because I think the team of your podcast kind of allows for it, but I grew up with a really fractured relationship with my dad and he wasn't really in, in and around my life. And if it wasn't for Gaelic football, one of my coaches was a guy called Paddy Hughes where I was starting to get in trouble and he was the only thing in my life that was kind of pulling me back and centering me and saying, you know, there's, there's more to you than this. And then in Colossi Eda, there was a guy called Jim Conroy who, again, I kept kind of going back to like getting in trouble and, you know, shooting myself in the foot with a lot of these opportunities, he was the one that sent me. And then Jason Crandall came along and he was the one that sent me. And then there's three or four people, you know, a PhD advisor, Brian Foe, 
Mm. I in, the analogy I make is like, if you ever see like a busy fly just like bouncing around a room and trying to like get out and you have to have, you have to slowly guide it towards the window to get it out. <laughs> That's basically what folk did to me. And why I love what you're doing so much is that he, he was this chair of Ohio State University, one of the best programs in the country. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, like super stoic and, you know, really intelligent. But he had this personal aspect to him where once I learned his story and learned his background, that was like, oh man, I actually can do this, you know? And so mm. he, he was huge for me as well. And I think that's, you know, important and it's something I spoke about before and that sometimes we see these professors and, you know, they're kind of in our minds and, and rightly so are kind of up on this pedestal because of the work that they've done. But actually everyone's human and we all kind of have a story to tell and we're all, um, they were PhD students or they were undergrad students mm. once too. And I think that kind of human aspect of it will hopefully make the research and the, and the scientist a bit more human, I suppose, you know, and, and a bit more... Um, accessible to maybe younger people or people like yourself someone who was kind of not really sure where they wanted to go in their teens and now look at you you know yeah I think that's it and I think that's all of those experiences have turned that into my own MO where Mm -hmm. I try to make it as human as possible and I take a lot of hope out of seeing this kind of be something that's really strongly emerging amongst the air generation of scientists kind of the early career researchers because in America, especially, like it's super formal, it's really rigid, and that that prestige, people can run away with that. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? We talk about like the the all white dude, all white professor. That stuff is rampant in the states, but at the same token, there's a lot of phenomenal people that are really open, that are human, that talk about their struggles with being a scientist because it's super hard to do what we do. Mm-hmm. It's really really hard, and what I take a lot of you know, hope out is, is seeing a lot of us kind of come up and try to make that more of a common thing. And that's what I, I take a lot of inspiration from. So I just try to do the same thing, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and I suppose just as well for your career progressions. So you, you then did a master's, I think I'm right, in kinesiology. Um, maybe tell us a bit about that and then kind of up to the point you are today. And then we'll get into your research, which I'm obviously very uh, excited to hear about. Yeah, so my, my master's, at the time, I was still kind of a bit of a me-head where I thought I wanted to be a strength and conditioning coach and I started, started, thought I wanted to do sports nutrition and stuff. So my master's was in kinesiology, which is the study of human movement. And a lot of the focus of our lab was on uh, human performance, sports nutrition and body composition. So it was really, really cool because I got to work with, you know, some of the highest level sports teams in the States and work with like the American football players and understand the body at that level. Which, when I started to shift more towards uh, the exercise oncology route during my PhD, it lended so well to, I think, how I found my niche in the area. Because I was looking at that after my master's going, there's so many brilliant strength and conditioning coaches and there's so many brilliant people in the areas of exercise physiology that I don't know how much of a voice I can have. I don't know how much of an impact I can have. Whereas when I was looking at the exercise oncology literature, it's really, really new. I mean, the first study was 86. And even within that, it didn't start to pick up till the mid to late 90s. And so it's a really new area. And a lot of the earlier work was kind of just focused on the safety and feasibility of exercise. But where I saw my area, my background fitting in was that a lot of the principles and how we look to design exercise at the elite level of working with athletes, professional, you know, Mm -hmm. football players, 
are the same principles that we have to apply in clinical populations and people who need more strategic management of, of an exercise stress. And so that kind of journey combined was, was using a lot of the stuff I learned in my master's and early on in my PhD career to, to know what I'm doing. And, and this coupling of, you know, kinesiology and sports exercise with the oncology side of things, was that initially triggered with your own personal experiences in that your mom was ill at the time or did you have a, an interest in this beforehand? No, I had no interest at all. I didn't know anything about cancer. I didn't know anything about any of the treatments. Um, I didn't even know the field existed. So it was very similar when my mom got diagnosed, my undergrad mentor, Jason Crandall, Got, he knew me, so got to know the story. He flew me out to the American College of Sports Medicine, which is a huge conference in, in the States. And that was like, it blew my mind because it's like 10,000 people walking around, all experts in exercise. And then I'm going to these symposia where people are talking about this, talking about rehab clinics and exercise oncology. And I was like, this is unbelievable. And so he was the one that kind of sparked the interest. And then during my master's, I, I did a project on people with breast cancer who had completed treatment. And then as I moved into my PhD, I got much more intensely involved. So the first year of my PhD program, I got, I got lucky and got a position as a strength and conditioning coach in professional soccer. But that was to make sure I didn't want to do it as a career, if that makes sense. Yeah. My advisor was like, if you're going to do it, do it now before you're three years into a career and trying to, trying to second guess. So after that, I pretty much jumped headfirst into the exercise oncology stuff where for the guts of my PhD, I worked in a lab where we worked with prostate cancer, endometrial cancer, breast cancer, and they've now started moving to head and neck cancer, which was just learning about the different types of cancer, learning about the different types of treatments, how we have to modify exercise accordingly. And then that's what got me the, the opportunity to come over here to Australia, where I work in a, a medicine, medicine research institute, where we just look across the, the span based on um, what type of cancer you have, where you're at before, during, and after um, cancer treatment, what type of treatment you receive. We try to be specific about how we target an exercise intervention to try and improve a certain outcome. And within different types of cancer, is there, as I'm sure you're going to tell me, but is there different types of exercise programs that you can recommend? Or do you, is it, it's very tailored, is it, I'm assuming? Yeah, yeah. So, there's actually a couple of really great papers. And funny enough, at Trinity, Emer Guinan is her name. She's leading a group of exercise oncology researchers that are up there with world leaders. They're doing some fantastic work mm. um, at Trinity. But there's some broad-reaching guidelines that exist um, that are kind of the usual stuff. You know, try to accumulate 150 minutes a week and blah, 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 that no one focuses on, no one really tries to do. But then there's the appreciation that this needs to be tailored based on what side effects we are seeing or we anticipate being presented. So for example, an individual with prostate cancer receiving androgen deprivation therapy is a type of hormone therapy mm. that results in castrate levels of testosterone. So that removes testosterone from the body completely in men. So immediately you start to see changes where you see fat mass accumulation. So they gain fat mass, they start to lose muscle mass. They start to have breakdown in bone mineral density. They start to become weaker, and then all of that exposes them to comorbidities down the line and increased risk of cancer-related all-cause mortality. So with those type of changes, especially when you're looking at bone and muscle and physical function, we're saying, well, weight training is going to be the way to go to, to try and reverse or arrest as much as that as we can. 
compare and contrast that to say someone who receives anthracycline chemotherapy for breast cancer, that is associated with cardiotoxicity. So impairments in the structure and the function of the heart, and that takes a toll on the body, not just during and closely after treatment, but can last quite a bit after. So then we're saying, well, maybe we start to look at cardiovascular exercise there as the predominant way of doing exercise in, in that population. But at the same time, understanding that individuals with breast cancer, especially if they're receiving steroids, they can have increases in fat mass that's hard to shift. So we match the cardiovascular exercise with maybe some functional exercise to make sure they're, they're okay. And then that's housed within a weight management program. So we're trying to avoid exponential increases in, in fat mass. And then you look at, say, sorry, go on. No, no, you go for it. Yeah. <laughs> so you got me on a rant here. No, keep going. Definitely. And then you look at, say, uh, head and neck cancer. So imagine if you had chemotherapy throughout your body and you've got surgery and radiation to any site along the head and neck. You have dramatic and really pronounced weight loss, digestive issues. You can't get enough calories in. And so that is associated with this condition called cancer-related cachexia, which is a kind of a more aggressive form of muscle wasting that is not just related to the treatment, but it also can be related to inflammation throughout the body. So a lot of people that are, work, are working in space or writing reviews on this automatically go, well, we need aerobic exercise to, do, to target inflammation. And the way I look at that is these people are already in a caloric deficit where they can't get enough calories. And I'm talking about trying to maybe get a thousand calories in a day. It's so painful to swallow. Some of them actually can't swallow and they need um, supplements to get in. Why would you add an additional 200 calories of expenditure mm-hmm. to aerobic exercise when we don't even know if it's actually going to do much for inflammation? Whereas I look at that and go, we know that resistance exercise or weight training can, can provide a signal to maintain muscle. So what can we do What's the least we can do with weight training that isn't going to expend too much calories, but it's going to provide some sort of signal to preserve muscle if we can. And so those three together kind of give you an idea of, we look at uh, the type of cancer you have, we look at what treatment you're receiving or have received or are about to receive, what the side effects are or the anticipated side effects we, we can see, and then try and tailor the exercise based on all that. Yeah, and, and I suppose apart from the physical benefits of exercise, you know, for a cancer patient, there's also a huge amount of mental benefits. And, you know, there's been many studies showing that exercise and keeping fit and stuff improves your, your mental health. And do you look at that at all? Or I, I know you're interested in the psychology side of it too. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's such a huge component of it. It, it needs to be have a light shone on it a little bit more, I think. Because I think a lot of people working in a space are like me, a bit me-heady and don't necessarily appreciate, appreciate the psychological component. Mm. What I will say is we're still trying to build bodies of evidence for different outcomes. So muscle mass is really hard to improve. But what I can say is that quality of life, specifically that related to health-related quality of life. So quality of life is this huge domain of you know your finance plays a role, your relationship with your spouse plays a role. But the components that are tied to your physical fitness meaning that if we improve your fitness, you can get out about your daily life. You can maintain physical function. Those things lead to tangible improvements in quality of life. And the way we try to structure our exercise interventions is trying to develop this group cohesion because we know that it is a lot different for a 70-year-old man with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer to come in 
and work with a 22 year old mm. who just graduated with a fitness cert compared to put that man in a group of another 10 men with prostate cancer and they can talk about incontinence they can talk about body image they can talk about sexual dysfunction or whatever impairments they're receiving and they're also going through this journey with exercise together so that social cohesion and the community is mm. is really powerful for quality of life and self-efficacy as well yeah and, and within your research is what you're trying to do kind of to roll this out and have this as a rehabilitation kind of program post chemo or post cancer treatment and maybe I'm a bit naive to this but does this happen like do is this an elective thing that people can say after their their treatment or if they've been diagnosed I'm gonna try get on this program or do medical practitioners recommend this it's it's a huge area right now because the answer to that is different in a lot of different countries. Mm. So in Germany, for example, it is a standard of care. Whenever you get a cancer diagnosis, I don't want to overstate this, but I think they get 50, five, zero free exercise sessions with a trained professional. Okay. In the United States, there's no coverage. The only coverage you get is maybe getting a referral to a physical therapist if you just had you know, surgery for breast cancer, for example. And in Ireland, the same challenges exist where there's not much coverage. Um, in terms of support. So there's expertise there in a lot of places, but how we get people to pay for it. And, you know, we make the analogy a lot of times between us and cardiac rehab of trying to establish this kind of setup. The pushback we get from clinicians, and to be fair, it's a fair criticism, is that the evidence isn't there yet necessarily to build it, you know, the, the strength of the evidence. There's a lot of work, but in terms of like, the, the strength of the evidence, it's not necessarily there beyond quality of life. So some of us are trying to move more into clinically clinical outcomes, such as treatment completion rates or treatment efficacy, or even longer down the road, looking at survival or cancer-related or all-cause mortality. So we think that if we target those kind of harder clinical outcomes, that might get more people on board. But even then, you know, you look at us trying to go to say ASCO, which is the, the biggest oncology society in the world, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, they're presenting research with thousands of patients. And to do an exercise trial, especially at the length that we try, would try to do it, you know, a few years to try and look at survival, try to get a thousand people for something like that. The, the personnel power you would need and the funding you would need and the support you would need is massive. Mm. So now we're trying to find a balance of how much evidence do you need what do we need to get you to, to get it there? And I've also changed my perspective a lot as I've gone through my career of like, maybe it doesn't work. You know, it, we think it has great benefits and we have to find a balance between supportive of it versus being evangelical about it. Yeah. So I know that exercise works, but I don't experience every single benefit that exercise has to offer. You know what I mean? And likewise, my, my ma is, has, knee away in both her knees she's had breast cancer she's a smoker she's a drinker she's overweight what am i going to do from an exercise perspective that's going to give her this huge holistic benefit where there's a lot of psychology going to be involved with someone like her mm. and maybe smoking cessation is the first thing that she needs to worry about so i'm i'm very cautious about if we eventually found outcomes of of exercise can improve survival we have to be careful about how we're conveying that message because if we publish a paper, the news picks up on that. Yeah. And we say exercise can increase survival. That's a lot different than having someone sitting across the table from you who's got a terminal disease and said, but wait, you said if I squat, I'll live longer. Mm. <laughs> like, oh, we got to be really 
careful and yeah. clean with the expectations of what we can receive, you know. Yeah, and, and I think that point, I think we see it in the media the whole time about they pick up one story and it's like wonder drug will save, you know. And and I think the way you explained it there was was brilliant because you're working on this to, to show that exercise does have benefits, but you're not going to say this is going to radically change every single cancer patient's life because people are different. And I think that's the the whole issue, I suppose, with, with medicine and with medical research at the minute is that we can't, one size doesn't fit all, but it probably will have huge benefits for a huge group of patients down the line. Yeah, and I think there's, it's just a more honest approach of, of saying, my job isn't to tell you that you have to exercise or my job isn't to tell you that um, these are exactly what you're, you're going to receive from exercise. My job is to tell you, here's what we think might happen. Mm-hmm. Here's the variability of what might actually happen give you that information. And then if you decided something you want to do, I can help you along. I can, you know, put uh, exercise programs together, put strategies in place to hopefully make it more successful. But in no way am I meant to be the, the flag bearer of you have to do this and we have to, because who am I to tell someone who has three months left to live, who wants to go, you know, move down to Wexford and chill out in a cottage the rest of their life that, no, you have to come stay in Dublin and do this specialized exercise program because this is with me. Yeah. It's like, it might help. But it might not. And I, I think your your point there was brilliant. And having the media, you know, misinterpret what we're doing, I think is is one thing. And it, it screams for the need for us to be open and out there as scientists to be able to correct that. Because if someone takes your, your study and misinterprets it, if you're not out there, no one's paying attention to what you're saying. They're paying yeah. attention to RTE or BBC or whatever it is, you know. Yeah. And, and I spoke, you know, throughout this podcast to many different scientists and while I do ask them, how do you think this will impact a patient's life? Oftentimes it's quite, what we're doing is quite basic science or basic research, especially in the field that I'm in. And it's more about knowledge. So the more we know, the more you can kind of direct treatment options or, or um, management of certain conditions. But I'm also interested in kind of the day-to-day of what you do or, or mm. your, your research, because I'm assuming it's probably quite different to the wet lab research that I'm in. Um, and so could you kind of talk me through, I suppose, your specific focused research area? Because I know we've spoken mm. broadly about exercise oncology, what you're particularly focused in. And I know you've just been uh, appointed as an assistant professor in South Carolina. What, what do you hope to bring there? Um, yeah, so it, it's funny. I love what I do. I love what I do. So my area of research right now is focused around strategies to try and reverse or stop muscle loss in cancer. And so right now that looks like using weight training with a combination of uh, nutrition or supplementation. But what that means is that I get to train people three days a week in a clinic and hang out with people and teach them how to to lift weights and exercise and all that stuff. So the amount of joy and, and fulfillment I get from that especially in a lot of people's lives where there is a lot of stress, there is a lot of financial and emotional burden on these individuals. We get to be that positive source for them. So a a lot of my time is spent up working in a clinic, working with people. And then we do a lot of hands-on patient recruitment. So we've got to go and meet with clinicians and tell them about our projects and get them involved in referring patients. And then like a lot of the rest of what we do as scientists, what I used to do a lot of hands-on for my PhD, like running individual assays, now we contract out. So a lot of my obligations now are writing grants um, or publishing manuscripts, 
to try and you know facilitate further research and then within the grants we we structure them and work within teams to to kind of offload a lot of this work so we would you know work with your labs for example where you would do a lot of the basic science and we're just the, the idiot to exercise and so that's what i love about it it's it's so dynamic you know i've mm-hmm. i've got 80 adhd you know something shiny takes my <laughs> takes my attention really quickly so the fact that i can balance from hands-on working with a patient to i i also teach a lot here at the university to teaching to writing about our papers or going after grants or then you know meeting with teams about collaborations it's just it's a really cool gig you know also yeah, I'm interested in trials. Like, how do you go about kind of if you were to set up a trial of, of an exercise trial, how do you go about that? Because it's completely different to what we would do. Yeah, it's um, and it's funny because I'm going to have to do it at South Carolina, which is, is going to be challenging because it's it's easier for me to set up a trial now with Edith Cowan. Um, my responsibilities have changed where as a PhD student, I was helping out in different labs. So I was mainly responsible for my own project. Whereas now as a postdoc, my responsibility is across several different trials so i have a role a bigger or lesser role in different trials and so say for example we wanted to look at exercise in individuals with lung cancer first there's a brilliant colleague of mine carolyn mcintyre who does some uh, phenomenal work here in lung cancer so chat to carolyn hey what do you think about this she will say i've got a colleague at charity's a hospital down the road or i got a colleague here let's set up a meeting and so it's in cancer it's a combination of me being humble enough to come to an oncologist as the exercise person. I'm not a doctor. I haven't got a clue about treatments. You know, I've learned a bit throughout my experience, but I go to an oncologist and say, here's what I'm thinking from an exercise perspective. Is this something you see in your patients? And they might say, yeah, you're on the money. They might say, you're an idiot. This is actually what we see. And through those conversations, then we say, is this going to have clinical benefit to the patient? Is this actually going to be worth them pursuing? And a lot of times now we actually bring patients on board to get their perspective mm. because what we and the oncologists might think is beneficial, they might be struggling with something else. So those conversations happen and we come up with this project and then, then I don't know how much different it is. So basically we put together this project, we'll apply for a grant or sometimes it's unfunded, we'll, it'll be a PhD student project. So we've got an institute where we've got several staff dedicated to recruitment and we've got several exercise physiologists who take charge of the most, the majority of our, our patient work and our trials. So we've got our study. We have to go through ethics and get it approved. And then once it's off the ground, the oncologists who have been on board with the study, they refer patients to us. And then it kind of operates like a gym almost. You know, they triage to us. We'll do our assessments and then randomize into whatever group they're in. Some will exercise, some might not, or it might be exercise versus exercise plus something, mm. you know. And I think that's that's the beauty for me. I think if I didn't have that human contact, if I if I didn't have the the applied aspect, I, I'd be lost. Because there's time now with, with everything going on, you know, we haven't had as much patient contact and it, it's hard on my mental health because I'm I'm such a an extrovert and rely a lot on being around people and feeding off of people. I've found that I love writing and I love doing the grants, but I need that extra bit to kind of keep me excited and passionate about it, you know. Yeah, and uh, like even you're talking there, you get the patient aspect, and I think that's so important. And throughout, I've I've mentioned at the start, but you you have your own podcast, so Reach, and there you kind of talk to different medical and science, scientist practitioners in the field, but also patients, which I think is is amazing. Um, and maybe talk to you a little bit about why you set that podcast up and kind of what the overall theme is. Yeah, and 
it's funny it's changed a lot over the years so the initial kind of it was born from trying to recruit in my masters and just facing resistance across the board from the physicians now this was in rural georgia so this was deep deep south where they may not have been as amenable to something like this but even uh the people who had had cancer previously, none of them knew that this existed. And a lot of them were carrying fears of people in, in their lives or, or even physicians saying, you know, for breast cancer, don't lift a gallon of milk over your head. And they take that because it's good advice post-surgery, but it's not good advice for the rest of your life. And so these people have been walking around for five or six years going, oh, well, the doctor told me not to lift a gallon of milk over my head. And they've got a ton of deconditioning for this. So, the podcast was born out of the idea to try and uh, increase awareness of our field, increase the knowledge of, of what we're doing. But it's funny because um, it started out with, with the intent of being for people like my ma who don't have a scientific background and just to, spoken to the lay person. That's where I found value in getting a lot of the patient stories. Like there was a, a woman, she's actually anonymous, but her Twitter handle is Crazy Cancer Lady and she's, she's got terminal cancer. And we had a great podcast where she talked really frankly about what it was like to to know that she was going to pass away and, you know, a couple of years from this and what she was trying to leave behind and things like that. But then at the other end, I had uh, conversations with oncologists from Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York where they're talking about tumor microenvironment and vasculature. And my mom's going like, I can't even spell vasculature. What are you trying to do? <laughs> you know? So what I've actually done in recent times is I struggled a lot with deciding what it was. Is it for researchers or is it for people like my ma? And I've kind of decided to tease that out and lean into the podcast being for researchers, but I'm in the process of developing a lot of videos and content that I'm going to start releasing, hopefully towards the end of this year, on YouTube that is more directed to people like my ma. Because how we talk to those two people are different and what they need to know is different. And so I had to go through all the pains of, of growth in that process, but I think where I'm at now, I'm really comfortable with the podcast is kind of like, you know, there's some great patient stories, but a lot of it is for practitioners and, and researchers and then the YouTube stuff will be for the lay people, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, I think sometimes the terminology and the the dictionary of words that we have as researchers is so daunting. Um, and, and I also want to talk about, which is what, how I kind of came across you and your research. I think you know what I'm going to say. Um, you've, you've recently started uh, putting up kind of videos on Twitter. And I think anyone in, in academia or in research will find these, will, will uh, relate, <laughs> definitely. So talk to me a little bit about those videos uh, and, and how they came about, because I find them gas anyways. Uh, I, I don't keep, I've, I've had a lot of attention since then and people keep asking that and I've no idea how they started. There's a really good guy, uh, Irish guy, I think Sean Burke is his name, um, comedian fella. He he actually has done some videos where if parents gave post-match press conferences and I've seen a few of his and I thought they were hilarious. And it was one of these days where the first one was if academics gave post-match press conferences. And the material came to me within the space of five minutes. I was driving to and from a shopping center and by the time I got back to my house with all this content, and originally I was only going to do it for, you know, a close mates and put it out in a group or whatever. And I just said, you know, feck it off a whim. Like I'll, I'll stick it up on Twitter and see how it goes. And I had no idea what was, going. you know, the first one got, I don't know, a million views or whatever. And I had all this now attention, no idea what to do. I had to turn off my phone for two days. Like 
it was bananas. But I guess the the intent behind it for me, it kind of related to my background is that there's always been this sense of, you know, especially in America, it can get the ivory tower can be a bit, you know, emphasized. And I was always taught, told to kind of tone down my personality and tone down my voice. And, you know, you've got to be professional. And I could never understand why people equated professional to being serious. And I think there's a huge, like we as scientists take ourselves too serious. And there's a difference between taking your work serious and taking yourself serious. So, you know, to be honest with you, if that first video had a bombed, I probably would have not done it again. <laughs> you know, but the fact that it got, like people seemed to enjoy it, I just said, that was confirmation to me of being like, there's a lot of people out here that want to do good work, but also want to have a bit of crack with it and, you know, enjoy it. And so that was kind of where I just kind of said, screw it, I keep going with them. And, and you should see, you know, our, our lab WhatsApp group, I say they're sick because I keep, you've done, I think, three now. And I'm like, it's this lad again. He's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I really enjoyed them. And that, that's what's, I'm, it, it kind of, it's paused now with, with everything going on. Of it, It's fascinating to see that. It's so relatable mm. because a lot of what I do would be kind of niche to exercise and cancer or exercise field. But science, you know, you got engineering scientists or people in geography and all these other areas that, our whole combined, like the common area is like this, this kind of general niche. And then you talk to normal people and are like, wait, this dude's getting attention because he does science video. Like, you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. I'll, I'll have to put it up. Um, I'll put it up before I post this podcast anyway, so that people, people <laughs> can see it. Yeah. Um, but also one of the questions I like to ask people on this is if you weren't in science and if you weren't in the career you're in now, where do you think you would have, ended up or what do you think your career would have looked like I'd probably be a laborer or bricky or something so i was i was doing a lot of that throughout um secondary school i was kind of like summer jobs as as a bricky or a bar, barman i was a barman for a while probably would have continued on doing one of those things because again i before i moved to america before i had all those experiences none of this was even in my mind so i would have first and foremost been a failed semi-professional football player and then I would have been sitting on a bar stool telling everyone that I could have made it and then I'd be you know on a building site somewhere and probably to be honest I don't know having a great time doing it there's a lot I struggle with 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 leaving Ireland and living away from home that that question is a load of question but yeah just you know hanging out my dad's a taxi driver would have been doing something similar to him just kind of earning a good wage and trying to make my way and do you see yourself coming back to Ireland anytime in the future? You probably don't know yet. I know you've, you're going over to South Carolina now, but do you ever see yourself coming back and setting up shop here? I always flirt with the idea. And I think that's part of, that's part of moving away anyway, where you do always want to flirt with, with going back. It, it's different for me because I left so young. I left mm-hmm. when I was 18. And I didn't move over with a group of Irish people. I moved to the middle of nowhere in America on my own. And was raised, you know, America pretty much. Like I was raised by a lot of my American friends and mentors and stuff like that. Where I also, between the age of 23 and 28, I didn't go home. So I've lost some, not to say I couldn't settle back in, but I've lost a lot of close touch with a lot of people I grew up with. Whereas a lot of my my really good friends now are in the States. So I'm kind of leaning more towards there. But then it's like, you know, parents are getting older and sicker. Would you want to be home and help them out? You know, it's, it, that is another kind of loaded question. In addition to the career in the States is so, not necessarily, it, it's competitive everywhere. 
but the the idea of going from assistant professor on a tenure track to getting a tenure track position, the work it would take to kind of be in the middle of that, uproot myself, move back to Ireland, try and start something else new, only for a maybe, and then to if it didn't work out, then take it and go back. Yeah, I think that's given me pause as well because th- there's also like a look at Eva Ryan's a phenomenal researcher in Cork. Emer is a phenomenal researcher in Trinity. The options for me to do what I would do without impeding on someone else's area are limited in Ireland. You know, so I look at that as well and go on. I have no problem that I would be able to collaborate with people, but I certainly wouldn't want to move in to, to try and step on Emer's toes at Trinity, mm. for example, or anything like that. So it's like this big whirlpool of factors that are involved in it you know um yeah and kind of my last question for you is what do you love most about what you do and and where does that passion come from i suppose i think this like i love the passion comes from feeling so lucky that anything else and like because i studied a lot of different things and was useless about a lot of them anything else i wouldn't be in this position and I feel so fortunate now, especially because jobs are so scarce, to actually have a position as an assistant professor. You know, I was the first person to, to go to college. I was the first person to graduate with a degree. You know, my dad's a taxi driver, my mom doesn't work, all that stuff. Like, I carry all of that and feel so fortunate that now I get to work with, with people who are vulnerable. You know what I mean? Like, I, I was one of the reasons I chose to be a researcher was that I didn't have the mental strength to be a personal trainer because those people who spend all day, every day working with people all day, every day, they are to be commended because I, the way my mind works, I was getting bored by that. I was kind of going to, it felt like Groundhog Day. So I found this job where I get to work with people and get enough to give me my fulfillment. But I also get to work with students and teach them. Mm. I get to mentor kids and show them the people that are on the fence like I was, that are either going to do well or going to fall through the cracks, identify them and work with them and help them. And then I get to do stuff like this. We talk to other cool people about what we do. Like it doesn't, there's a lot of stress that comes with it. There's a lot of pressure, but I, I welcome all that as the package of what we do and to be able to do what we do. It, it's unbelievable. Well, I mean, I think that's a brilliant note to, to end our chat. And thank you so much for coming on and being so like open and honest and really taking me through your whole career progression because I think your story is fascinating. And yeah, I'm sure you'll get a few more follows on Twitter after this, I hope. <laughs> but yeah, th- thanks again for coming on. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I just want to congratulate you on this. I think it's a really cool idea and I hope to see a lot more of these in the future. So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts.